Welcome to episode 150. Today, Dr. Lisa Oshlander and Dr. Joanna Jip joins us to talk about their new book on school-wide systems that serve ELs. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has the success of a school depends largely on its systems. But what are the systems that create the best conditions for multilinguals? In this conversation, we learn about the essential systems school leaders can create to ensure that MLs have the most equitable learning experience as possible. Equity is by design, not by accident. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have Dr. Lisa Oslinder back on the podcast for the second time and to have Dr. Joanna Yip on the podcast as well. She is the co they're both co-authors of a new book called School-Wide Systems for Multilingual Learner Success, a Roadmap for Leaders. And you both have such extensive experience supporting schools. So can we start there? And can you please tell us about um, your current work context? Okay, so I'll start. My name, I'm Lisa Auslander. I am the Principal Investigator and Senior Project Director at Bridges to Academic Success. It's a project out of CUNY Graduate Center that supports newcomer multilingual learners, their teachers. We do teacher education and curriculum development, and we support districts in New York and in other parts of the country. And I'm Joanna Yip. I'm also in New York City. And um, I recently joined the team at the English Learners Success Forum, which is a national nonprofit that um, really seeks to, um, you know, really improve the quality of instructional materials so that um, the assets and needs of multilingual learners are, um, are, are embedded in the supports that are um, in curriculum. So we often have people come on the podcast and they talk about strategies for teachers, but I particularly love when there's a book about four administrators and district leads and superintendents because they make all the decisions that really impact the way we teach. So what was the seed for this book for administrators? Well, first I'll say um, that we wrote the book for any leader. So we include administrators, but also teacher leaders as part of this book um, to address their needs as well, because we recognize that leadership lives in all parts of the school and all parts of the district. Um, and I guess I'll start by saying that we both have experienced firsthand in our work with schools how the lack of a systems approach really affects the way um, schools serve multilingual learners. And so, for example, there are still schools that haven't been able to program teacher time for collaboration, whether in grade team meetings or in co-teaching partnerships. And then in some cases where there is team time, the instructional discourse doesn't go that deep or it doesn't go deep enough to address the needs of multilingual learners. 
So for example, it's not evidence-based or it doesn't address language and literacy needs. Um, and we don't really tackle pedagogy and instruction in the book because we know those practices can't take hold without those strong systems and structures. And also that's been covered so well in other places. So we really decided to focus on this in the book. And so um, in addition, besides instruction, we wanted to uh, you know, address cross-collaboration and building school-wide systems and socio-emotional learning, um, discourse among counselors, teachers, staff to boost those kinds of supports. Um, and facilitators and leaders don't always get training just to learn how to lead this work. That's something we failed and experienced as well. So leaders need models of what it looks like to lead this work in schools. So we put examples in the book to share with others. So I don't know, Joanna, do you wanna add anything? No, I think I think that's right, Lisa. You know, I think, you know, both of us, um, you know, we've had our own journeys as educators. Um, you know, for me, I, you know, I kind of came to this work um, you know, working as a teacher and instructional coach for many years. And um, I've, I, you know, have really consistently had a very laser focus on language and literacy and really hoping for schools to create communities where, you know, students can feel agency and confidence in, in you know, um, in language and literacy so that they can access education. Um, you know, but I think we've learned over the over time that those instructional practices are really, um, you know, it, it, it's not a, it's not enough in order to ensure that, um, you know, that that work can really be embedded in schools and that, you know, those strong systems are really necessary. So, um, you know, Lisa and I kind of serendipitously, you know, came together in our work and, and realized that there was a lot of commonality um and and we also have done work together um so you know i think we kind of decided like let's just put some of these stories down you know we've we've encountered so many amazing educators that have been doing the hard work and we wanted to um you know bring their stories to light you know joanna just shared her story and i think that one of the things we did want to highlight in this talk today with you is that the answer to why we wrote the book is in our stories and so as Joanna was sharing her story, I realized that I should also share mine a little bit in like the background. So in my journey, before I knew Joanna, I was an inclusion teacher in social studies at the middle and high school level. And I served multilingual learners, general ed students and special education students um, in that inclusion setting for about 10 years. And then I was also co-teaching with both ENL and special education teachers. So this was a big part of my background and what helped me realize that I needed to learn additional skills in language and literacy. I didn't have the background and have the training. And so my passion for the work and interest in school leadership and organization came through coaching and as a district admin administrator, seeing how schools and teacher leaders set up learning in totally different kinds of ways to serve students. And I met Joanna in our doctoral program together and that's where we realized our shared interest in organizational learning. And we're thinking all the time about how to better serve needs, um, the needs of our multilingual learners. Um, and so I would say, and just to add on to what Joanna said, that the book has come out of years and thinking and reflecting on how school leadership sets the groundwork for those systems and structures to support our students. And that when we came together, we had both been on a journey of kind of our own and then seeing the need for change um and the need for a systems approach to building equitable learning environments yeah the systems approach is just so important when i listen to you 
listing all the things that happen as a system-wise uh, factor, such as like no no time to co-plan, like that's such a huge, or no time to collaborate with teachers. That's such a huge. That's one thing that can really impact the instruction that uh, multilingual students experience. And if if schools school leaders just plan for that one thing or address that one thing, so many other dominoes fall after that. It's like they fall or like the pieces of the puzzle fit in when we do the, just that one thing. Imagine if we do, if we address the whole system. I think I'll just add that, um, I think there's an assumption for, you know, in the field that like the, 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 the main element that's needed for supporting multilingual learners is content expertise, right? It's knowing the research, it's knowing the instruction and the pedagogy. And it's not that that's not important, but I think we show that that alone um, can only get us so far because it can't really stick in, in the school community without strong systems and structures. So um, yeah, I think, yeah, that's the only thing I kind of wanted to add. Yeah, I really appreciate that. You you can have highly qualified, highly trained language specialists, but still working in a system that handcuffs them. And when they're handcuffed, they can't really support students because of the systems. For example, here's another one. I know that that, that teachers always talk about. I can't. I have like 27 classrooms, or they're all spread. Students are spread all over the place, and just changing one. Um, programmatic idea of clustering more students instead of having two students spread across 20, like all the students spread across 27 classrooms, let's have them spread across 12 classrooms instead. And that makes things different for, for teachers to offer true, uh, more equitable support for students. Just that one decision. Wow. Let's move to chapter two. Can we please talk about uh, the role of teacher team inquiry in linguistic responsive instruction? Yeah, so, you know, I think we, Lisa and I have kind of landed on this as a really important ingredient um, in schools. Um, and I think it's common knowledge that most teachers in the United States are sorely ill-equipped to support multilingual learners. They don't get much pre-service training, if any, um, and they don't get much additional support once they get on the job. So they're really working on their own. Um, most of the instructional materials that are used in schools weren't designed with the needs of multilingual learners in mind. So teachers are constantly trying to pull together, um, you know, from the internet, they're trying to, you know, just, they're scrappy, right? They're creative and they're incredibly innovative, but they have to do it on their own and so there's a real gap between what we're expecting teachers to be able to do and what's actually available to support them to do that job well. But we've found consistently in our work with schools that when schools create structures for team collaboration, they can actually be very successful despite this gaping hole in the system because creating a mechanism for teachers to support one another, to share their expertise, to problem solve together, enables teachers to do more than they can do by themselves, right? It builds 
collective efficacy, right? It's which is such an important um, ingredient that makes a school successful for all students, but even more critical for multilingual learners. Um, and so, you know, one of the first questions I often ask when when um, I start a, my support to a school is to understand what their teaming structures look like. You know, what is their approach for te teacher collaboration? And sometimes these structures don't exist, right? And it's very hard to help those organizations be able to tackle the learning and development and the skill building challenges that teachers need support with related to improving instruction. But with teacher teams, you know, it allows practitioners to put their heads together, to do, to do their best thinking, you know, to, to like to, to bring their practice, you know, and reflect on it together and really problem solve. And they can actually, I think, learn far more together than they can from outside experts, actually. Right. I always like to say to to teacher teams that like the answers are in the room, you know, they they just need to look to each other as resources. Um, but setting this up requires some key ingredients, and so we do illustrate that in the book, right? Um, it requires training and facilitation to actually lead these kinds of collaborations and conversations among teachers. Um, it requires the work uh, of the team um, to have a commitment to focus on language and literacy um, in the classroom, and it requires a hyper-focused lens on evidence of student learning. Um, you know, to really study the language practices of the students to drive that collaborative inquiry and professional learning. Um, so we show some examples of that in the book and, you know, the, the examples, you know, there's, you know, this one team that, 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 that we describe in depth and it's not a perfect team, right? It's got problems. The school has its own limitations, but they're working you know, like they're working with the with what they have, and it's a very realistic example of what's possible, even under, you know, not having enough resources, not having enough time, not having a, all of those sort of conditions that we wish that we had, and seeing a team, you know, still be able to make it work, and what impact that can have on multilingual learners. Would you be able to talk more about that team then? Just describe to us what's like, tell us the narrative of that team. Yeah. So, you know, in, in this team, um, the, you know, they spend a lot of time looking at student work, you know, and it, it, that's really at the core of what happens in teacher inquiry. Right. And they are like looking at the student work in very small and fine grade ways. They're not just kind of saying, you know, is this like, you know, a one, two or three on a rubric, you know, they're doing like a close reading of their students. And when they're talking about the student work, they're making connections to, you know, what they know about the student, the student's interests, you know, the social emotional aspect, right? Because they know these students and, and have built these relationships with these students. And so, you know, in that in that context, the teachers are able to really surface um, what the students need to learn next, but they're also able to really step back and appreciate what the students are able to do. Right? It's so easy for teachers to um, forget that 
you know, as students are learning English, right, you know, and because they may not always look like it's they're successful, right, that when they're they, they often gloss over and miss a lot of things that they cannot see. So these kinds of processes really help teachers elevate and surface what's actually happening with students. I would add just one thing to that and that the other thing about that team that has a really skilled facilitator, the coach of the school who really helps lead that conversation and facilitate and has a background in language and literacy and can support the teachers in doing that kind of in-depth work. And sometimes that's the invisible work that is happening that this, this coach, you know, had learned um, some of these facilitation skills and really done her own work um, in order for the teachers to feel successful and for their students. So there's a lot that goes in to building those constructive meetings and productive meetings besides just setting aside the time. It's sort of, that's the first step. And then there are many other steps that go alongside that. That's it. We see that. And you can see that in the example of the team in the book. I also feel like when you were talking earlier, uh, Dr. Yip, about how there, there's a piecemeal idea of like um, supporting students, transitioning that to a village focus, like the village coming together to support students. And, and you mentioned collective, effica, uh, collective teacher efficacy, and we know that that's the, the most important factor in student achievement, what everyone believes that they can actually have an impact on students. Right? And which means if, if everyone believes that, how do we get there? And you talked about job embedded professional learning. Let's move to chapter three. Can you talk to us about how to integrate SEL into teacher-wide planning and instruction? Sure. Um, so in the same way we talk about evidence-based observations of students and language and literacy, we also wanna take into account our students' socio-emotional literacy background and our own socio-emotional literacy and our own socio-emotional learning skills as adult educators and learners. So I think what we've learned is that it's really important to develop a language of socio-emotional learning um, through a framework. In the, in the book, we use CASEL. In our own work, we use CASEL. Um, and so that's key. And having adults experience and self-reflect on socio-emotional learning um, as individuals and in the community is really, really important part of building that with our students. So if we don't do it ourselves, our students aren't going to experience it in the same way. So that's really important thing that I found working in schools. Also, we know that understanding students holistically by learning about who they are and other aspects of their lives, in addition to their academic strengths and needs is so important. We both have really found that in our own work. And the book provides tools to do that. Um, we have an inventory of socio-emotional learning skills. Um, that includes how to help students build their socio-emotional learning through power plans, brain breaks, and just other kinds of activities that are more integrated into the instructional plan and streamlined. Um, the other thing, going back to the whole collaboration piece, is that how staff collaborate around student needs is also really key, whether that be in a teacher team meeting or across teams. Um, so, you know, often administrators, counselors, school staff, and educators need to come together, which can be very challenging in some of our schools. However, this collaboration is what really can lead to results for student outcomes as well. Um, and we have one example in the book of how school increased attendance among multilingual learners because they had this compassionate and strategic outreach that they did and they really came together and, you know, brainstormed, um, planned together, made a lot of phone calls to parents and families. Um, the counselor led it alongside the teachers and administrators and they really um, did an inquiry around 
what was the issues that were keeping their students from coming to school and what kind of socio-emotional learning issues were recurring in the community and that they needed to support their students and the families in particular and how do they needed to integrate the families into those conversations. So um, we tried to provide some examples and tools in the book to think about integrating socio-emotional learning and socio-emotional literacy. Would you talk a little bit more about those uh, tools and the strategies? Sure, there's, um, well, brain breaks are a, a, like an easy way and they've become really popular post pandemic. And I think, um, you know, I, what I found is that the before the pandemic, socio-emotional learning was kind of a hard sell and now people are more open to it, which I'm really, I think we're both excited about because we, you know, it's, it's such an important part of learning in general. Um, so brain breaks are one way, just kind of breaking up routine, creating, creating routines that address kind of socio-emotional learning, creating activity, brain activity, changing it up in the classroom um, can be really important to, to success of our multilingual learners to all students. But, you know, there's ways you can integrate language and literacy activities to make it fun, to make it engaging. So that's one example we provide in the book. We also go, you know, have more in-depth examples. For example, we have um, a power plan activity that we drew from a curriculum that some of our colleagues wrote that is really amazing in helping students self-reflect on how they deal with stress. Um, and this is something that I've led often with adult educators to help them guide them through so they can think for themselves ahead of time what that's like as an adult learner and then think about how they can set up that learning for their students. Um, those are just a couple of examples. We also think about, um, you know, when you're designing interventions across the school, how do you build communication and protocols in, across teams? That's so important. Um, especially when it comes to confidentiality and things that, you know, need to be shared, but we have to have systems in place, you know, to take precautions to support and protect our students. So we give an example of how we design a professional learning um, session for a school that looks that way and, and, you know, what their experience was in developing communication protocols. So there's all different ways that you can address socio-emotional learning from just the classroom um, to the team, like Joanna was describing, to, you know, across the entire um, school. Yeah, when I came upon this chapter, I was like surprised. I was like, oh, school-wide systems, why are we including SEL? And I thought, mm, could you talk about that intentionality? I think, you know, when we talk about language and literacy, people, you know, people understand that there has to be um, some kind of shared understandings of what language and literacy means. Um, although we're not always trained in it, we know and we accept that that's part of what has to happen in schools and that um, we need, I think it's accepted that we need to train in it. But socio-emotional learning, I think people think, um, usually when people think about socio-emotional learning, it's sort of as a one-off activity. But in the same way we do assessment you know, about where, where, you know, where we are with socio-emotional learning skills, where our students are um, in language skills, we want to do the same thing for socio-emotional learning. Um, the same way we set up systems to understand how in progress monitor our students in language literacy skills or in content, we want to do that in socio-emotional learning. So having screeners, having systems of progress monitoring in the classroom, um, integrating them into classroom instruction, um, you know, these are all ways that, you know, we can systematize what we're doing and integrate our socio-emotional learning with um, the instruction. I, I mean, these are things that can really help our students become more successful, right? As adults in the world, we need those skills. They're very, very important skills that we need in addition to our academic skills. They're really integrated, actually. 
So I get very excited. I mean, when I see teachers doing this, and I think that teachers are doing a tremendous job of integrating this and, and in the face of the pandemic and everything that has happened, teachers have stepped up in new ways to support students um, in socio-emotional learning. And I think particularly for our multilingual learners, there are many different issues that our students face that are challenging. Um, you know, I'm building in sort of language scaffolds, um, culturally responsive um, content scaffolds to support our students, you know, those kinds of things become important as well when we're thinking about socio-emotional learning. When I talk to teachers about social, the need for socio-emotional learning, I always say that people get hired for their hard skills, but they'll get fired for their soft skills. Right? And so we'll have students learn academic skills, but then they leave school and we haven't really developed their ability to be aware, uh, to be resilient, to be empathetic, and uh, to be listeners. Right? And so we would, we would have failed them to be um, highly functioning contributors of society, even though they're highly literate and academic. Right? But it's more than just that. It's the soft skills that are important. So. Yeah, I think, like, I think there's like, that's like one way to think about it is like who kids are, who we want, who we want support to support kids to become in the future. But I think the other side of it is like what Lisa said earlier about, you know, the the challenges that the students face, right? And um, the context in which they live, right? We know that in the United States, you know, um, you know, a, a disproportionate um, you know, number of multilingual learners live in poverty, right? Or they have been separated from their families, and um, you know, they they are um, at at the at the minimum, right? Dealing with all of the sort of emotional and social, um, you know, challenges that come with um, you know moving to a new country and and all of that, and um, and and also you know trauma, right? Connected to immigration or trauma connected to many other things um and um and and i think you know one of the reasons why that systemic approach and that integrated approach with creating that collaboration across teachers and counselors is so critical because we cannot schools cannot sufficiently provide the support that students need because of all of those things that they deal with on a day to day basis without like a really strong safety net. Right. And so that integration of social emotional learning and understanding how to support students um, in, in an integrated way, in a way that feels consistent and that there are core practices that cut across the work that the adults are doing. Um, is the only way to ensure that students have somebody to go to and consistently have um, resources and structures that um, allow for them to um, feel that they can bring their experiences and their and their whole selves to school um, because sometimes school can be a haven for them um, so I think that's you know for me that that like that was another and 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 Lisa um, you know in her data she 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 really brings some of that to life in the, in 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 how the counselors and the teachers together grapple with how to do that for students. Right, right. So I really appreciate that. And in it, so you gave the other perspective. You said it's not just enough about us helping students becoming who we want them to become, but it's also about uh, 
creating a support system ready to, to support students. And that's the other side of SEL. Are we ready to support students? Right. So let's move to chapter four. Can you talk about how we build system resilience with data? You know, many school systems, even, even now, right, even after, I would say, a, a long stretch of um, increased focus and attention um, on multilingual learners, that many systems continue to still be unaware of whether or not their systems are actually doing anything good for their kids in their buildings, in their districts. Um, there's little information about what's really happening on the ground um, about students um, feeding into the decision-making structures, right? And, and, and that, that kind of information rarely really floating up to the level of a principal or a chief, chief academic officer or a superintendent. And so, you know, when that happens, it's like the needs of the students are like out of sight, out of mind. Um, and so what organizations really need is like a mechanism to create a feedback loop. Right. And that's what system res resilience is really about. Right. Can the system adjust um, and get real time data about what's actually help happening with students? And this mechanism isn't very easy to build. Right. To be honest, when a school, you know, tries to put together a data framework to really help them deeply understand the needs and the, and, and the strengths of the multilingual learners they're serving. You know, it's it's not an easy task, but when they do try to go about doing it, um, you know, it creates an ability for them to have an early warning system. They get they begin to see some gaps in how they're serving students, and hopefully through that, they begin to change and improve their ways of working um, to really be more culturally responsive, to be more linguistically responsive, right? Um, and you know that that ultimately comes from knowing the students deeply as human beings. So system resilience is really about helping school organizations create create a way to be able to reformulate itself, right, and shift what they're doing, shift their practices, shift their approaches based on information um, about their students, and to to really, I think, have like look a look, take a hard look in the mirror. Like, are they really serving students in the way that they say and they want to be serving? Um, and so one of the roles of, of, of a school leader actually, right, is to understand the ways in which the systems can be contributing to or impeding that growth. And there's a role in looking at sort of the traditional macro uh, forms of data across the school, um, you know, academic, academic achievement, student achievement, right? Those things are important. They tell us some things, but they don't tell us everything, especially for students who are culturally and linguistically diverse, right? And so for, for, for multilingual learners, it's extremely important to get really close to the experiences of their students, their individual journeys, you know, their language stories, their culture and, and their literacy background. Um, you know, we, we have quite a bit in the book about understanding students' um, um, strengths in their home language literacy and, and taking time to understand that so that, you know, we're kind of decentering English language literacy as the only variable, variable to really look at, um, you know, how students are doing. Um, and so we show some examples of how schools can create 
um, you know, like a student profile, right? And really compile a holistic picture of students' experiences. And that that really gives teachers a much better picture of how they can respond to the students' needs in the classroom. Um, and, and including like, you know, systems that can be used to like help teachers really make a commitment. You know, I've noticed these new things about students and now I have to make a commitment to um, respond. I'm going to have to put these sort of different supports and scaffolds in place for students. And I got to I got to try it and I got to do it for a while consistently so that students can feel successful over time. Um, so so, yeah, I think that that's sort of the, the big picture. And and we provide a lot of tools and a lot of examples of what that means um, and how to utilize it and and and, and what 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 is significant about the, the different kinds of information. Um, and I think our goal is not to say that a school needs to build a data system, you know, whole hog, right? But to really know what's possible and to kind of take baby steps, incremental steps in building that structure over time um, in order to in order to build that system resilience. Could you describe a school that has built that that data system for us and what that looks like? Lisa, I think you should take that question. Well, I mean, I think before I talk about a school, like I was just going to give a smaller example. Is that okay? Instead of an entire school, I think it's easier to focus in on some like another tool from the book. Like Joanna described a profile, and that is one way of collecting information and learning about our students to have that kind of two-way feedback loop. Another way, and also across teams to have an understanding of students. Another way, we have a writing rubric that we include that we had developed um, at Bridges, and it's an assets-based rubric. So like in the world of assessment, there is often a gap in terms of culturally and linguistically responsive assessments that really assess multilingual learners, like also that shows what they can do and not just what they're not able to do. And so for example, that rubric, um, you know, gives credit to students for ideas in home language. Um, the rubric itself, the language of the rubric is set up to say what students can do as well as what students are struggling with. It has both that language to identify, you know, what students are able to do. That is so important and that can build. I have watched that in schools repeatedly now when teachers try out this rubric. Um, it's a six plus one traits writing rubric. We adapted it from another source, um, but we use, we adapted it for siphon newcomers so that it also assesses students at the word and sentence level and phrase level, particularly for students who are, have interrupted schooling, for example, so that it, but along a continuum of students who have more advanced English language. But in any case, all students can get credit for home language. So, so wonderful to see our students who are starting out, you know, in their Spanish language essay, a few sentences, they get credit and the confidence that can build right away and open the learning process for that student. Whereas before, you know, maybe they only used a specific English only rubric that shut them down and said, these are the things you can't do. It's amazing when you use a different tool, um, you know, in the classroom or across a team for the, in that case, how that can transform the way our students feel about learning. And also for us as educators, how we view our students. So I think, um, I'm not giving you an example of a school, but I have been watching schools lately do this. And it's just very exciting to see a team of teachers to completely change their perception of a way a student is performing simply by an adjustment in the kind of tool they're using. So definitely that is happening and it doesn't have to always happen across the whole school at once. 
Like, I think what I noticed is that often, and you know, schools, it happens in pockets sometimes when schools are making change. It's not always going to happen in this like transformative way right in the beginning. But once you start to begin those, um, creating those pockets of excellence where this kind of work is happening, then others can come in and watch that and see it. And that's how you can build um, and transform the school into a place where, the, where our students feel comfortable, where they feel successful and where they feel validated for what they do know. Um, don't we all want that, right? Um, but in a lot of cases, our multilingual learners have been invisible in our school um, or def, you know, kind of oriented in a deficit thinking manner. And so we need as educators to find tools, strategies, collaborative structures that will transform the way we practice. Um, and certainly going back to what Joanna was saying, those systems have to be put in place. They, they can't be in isolation from one another. So we have examples in the book of teachers and educators doing that. So hopefully that will inspire others to try it out and not think it has to be this big you know, thing that they have to you know, um, somehow accomplish, but that it can be done a little at a time, this, this kind of transformation. Your um, response made me think of Margaret Mead's uh, quote where she said, it's, it's about the small groups that really have been able to make the big change. Like when we want societal changes, it's always look for the small groups. Those are the ones that are making the change. And then all we have to do is like uh, highlight their work and model their work and, highlight, and expand upon their work to create that system of change. It's always the small groups. Let's move to the last chapter. How does one lead school improvement for multilingual learners? Okay, so I guess one thing that we've talked a lot about is that there isn't one path um, or single way to lead school improvement for multilingual learners, and there are just no perfect answers. Um, in the book, what we chose to do is share people's stories of leadership to help others troubleshoot and develop their own vision. So one of the examples in the book is of a dear colleague and administrator who helped build a more collegial environment among her teachers and structured meeting time that allowed for her teachers to use each other as a resource um, around L learning and inquiry. But this took years to develop and I think that's really important and she reflects on that. Um, another colleague in the book shares his story of becoming a first time EL district administrator and the challenges he has in knowing the answers um, quote unquote, and facing those structural obstacles, for example, to getting co-planning off the ground. Um, so there are many obstacles he talks about and how he kind of builds a collaborative environment among the educators he works with to get that feedback loop that Joanna was describing. So these are only a couple of examples um, of how leaders share their stories to help others reflect on their own journey. And in addition to the stories from our leaders, we also have um, a practical self-assessment tool around different facets of leadership, rubrics, um, checklists to kind of help design that facilitative leadership and ways that um, leaders can support each other in strategic planning and that can help and create and develop the systems that Joanna has been and we're both describing. Going back to, to what Joanna said before, uh, Joanna, you talked about when you work with the school to support their work, one of the first things you do is asking about their teaming practices. Could you tell us more about that process of not just talking about the teaming practice, but when you first work with the school, what are the things that you look for? I guess I'm trying to ask, like, what are the priorities when we're trying to create systems of support for students? You know, I think I would, so, so like 
you know, looking for those team structures, how are teachers working together? What is the culture of the collaboration that's happening among teachers? And, you know, is there is there a in, integration of actually not just multilingual learners, but all other students, right? That um, that that teachers are want to be mindful of, right? And 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 sort of have that um, equity focus in in the way that they talk about students and in the way that they focus their attention. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think the second is you know what what are what are the beliefs that they have about how multilingual learners learn? Um, you know what what do the what are what are the um, underlying understandings and beliefs and, and their sort of theory about what it takes to help multilingual learners succeed in school? And this is not. Um, this varies right in different contexts and again like there are research based practices that we know of, but at the same time how school communities interpret that and make it their own and live it out is very like specific to a, a school context. You know so i'm kind of looking for that like what is their language development framework like how do they understand. Um, you know, and then I think it's. I think it's, you know, the I think it's the leadership, right? What is the leadership's own thinking and approach around how they're going to create this change? Right? Is it a, you know, single one-to-one -one, like coaching model, you know, um is it is it through collaborative inquiry, you know, is it through um, you know, a a, a sort of um, innovative professional learning system that they're putting in place. You know, what what is their approach to supporting teachers in, in addressing challenges? And within that, where are their opportunities to elevate the assets and needs of multilingual learners, right? So not necessarily tacking on a new program for the school in order to meet the needs of the students, but to see like, what are the existing assets that the school already has? What are the practices and structures that already exist that can create opportunities where there's possibility for them to go deeper in supporting multilingual learners? I really appreciate that because I can hear listeners saying like, oh, I have to add one more thing. It's like, no, it's not adding one more thing. It's looking for the opportunities to continue to enhance the work that you're already doing. Let's end this way. Um, every, I know that you all, you both uh, often give keynotes and often the keynote ends with a single message. Like, they're like, okay, if you remember nothing from this keynote, please remember this. What is something that, what is a message that you would like uh, teachers and leaders to know about if they know nothing else from this, or if they remember nothing else from this conversation, what is the one thing you want them to keep in their hearts? Well, I can share. Um... Uh, uh, on, on our website, um, Lisa and I um, chose to include this quote by James Clear. It's from a book called Atomic Habits. Um, and he says, you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. Um, and I think, you know, that quote really encapsulates, I think, the heart of what we're saying in the book, which is that 
you know, all schools have great goals and great ambitions for students. The reason why they're not always able to meet those is not because they don't have goals, right? It's not because they don't have goals to support multilingual learners. It's because their systems and the structures aren't quite the way that they need it to be to be responsive. So I would say, yeah, that's like the that's like our our <laughs> like our key quote. <laughs> yeah, I love that quote. I think that's such a great quote and it captures it really well. And then the other thing I would just add is that um, there is no perfect system or perfect school or perfect team. And I think there's an illusion sometimes in leadership that we're trying to build something perfect or that we have to check all the boxes. But the reality is that's not the way it works. It's setting, when we talk about systems, what we're also really talking about is this opportunity and cre you know creating some kind of mechanism, communication to monitor what's happening. So we know when things go awry, we can revisit it and we can start over because my, I think both of our experiences, things will always fall apart. <laughs> That's the nature of schools. And um, how do we set ourselves up for success so that we have that mechanism, those systems in place that we can recover and revisit what's not working, what is working and um, move forward and make change where we need to and recognize what's going well. That's really what it's about. Um, so I'm really glad we had this opportunity to write this book um, because we've had the privilege and opportunity to see so many amazing practitioners really work on this. And I hope that it really helps others think about and examine their own work and their own systems practice. Well, I wanna thank you both for your generosity and time and also the labor that you took to write this book for the field because teachers can't work alone. It's, they need the collaboration of the village. They need the, the, all the systems to put in place for their, all their small little strategies, all their approaches to work inside the class. So I wanna say thank you for helping us. Thank you for giving us a resource to help us rise to the level of our systems. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. One thing I want to recommend is starting off with small pockets of excellence. Start small so that everyone in the school can see and watch and be inspired by what is possible. Their book provides many stories for us to witness the use of different tools to create pockets of excellence. I hope you can find a small group of dedicated teachers who are able to join together to explore which tools to use that will create a safe, welcoming, and equitable learning experience for MLs. Remember, we do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall 
to the levels of our systems. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Never